Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Marriage is one of the most sacred bonds we enter into. We take one person into our lives for better or worse, richer or poorer, through sickness and health, until death do us part. But what happens when that same person is the one who drives us to murder? And how far does someone have to be pushed to kill the person they promise to love forever? Dr. Felix Polk and his wife Susan had an unconventional marriage. He was 24 years her senior and they first met in therapy. But by all accounts, their relationship was passionate and filled with love for each other. A close friend of the couple described them as osmotic. He said, quote, It was as if they shared the same bloodstream. Neither could live nor feel whole without the other. Felix couldn't stop loving her, and Susan had no life apart from him. He continued, They melted together. There was no longer any definition of who he was and who she was. But in October of 2002, their roles were redefined. He was a victim, and she was a killer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the life of Susan Polk, an upper-middle-class housewife who, after 20 years of marriage, stabbed her husband to death. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Throughout 2002, 45-year-old Susan Bowling Polk and her 70-year-old husband, Felix, were embroiled in a bitter divorce, warring over the custody of their children and how to divvy up their assets. Susan claimed that Felix was emotionally abusive and that he had controlled her through brainwashing for the last 25 years. Felix, a clinical psychologist, alleged that his wife suffered from paranoid delusions. The battle between them reached a breaking point in October 2002. Susan and Felix had their final confrontation on October 13th. The next day, their youngest son found his father stabbed to death. This week, we'll follow Susan's upbringing and how Dr. Felix Polk came into her life will understand how their relationship progressed and why it fell apart. Next week, we'll cover Felix's murder, Susan's arrest, the subsequent trial, 
and the media circus that followed the whole story. Susan May Bowling was born on January 25, 1957, in Concord, California, about 20 miles northeast of Oakland. She was the second child of Dick and Helen Bowling. Her brother David had been born only 18 months prior. Susan was unexpected. She was a gifted child, crawling by six months and walking just two months after that. When she started speaking, it was in complete sentences. By the time she was four, Susan read books on her own. But when Susan was five, Helen and Dick got a divorce. Dick had fallen for another woman that Helen described to her children as a temptress. To make ends meet, Helen rented out the house in Concord, and she and the kids moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Oakland. According to Carol Pogash's book on Susan Polk, Seduced by Madness, Dick Bowling initially tried to gain custody but was unsuccessful. He floated in and out of their lives, but by the time Susan was 11, Dick had all but disappeared. Books became the defining feature in Susan's life. They were the keys that unlocked the door to what she referred to as her interior world. And Susan's natural tendency to retreat in on herself may have been exacerbated by her parents' divorce. Before we continue with Susan's psychology, please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Dr. Carl Picard has written extensively about the impact of divorce on children and the myriad of reactions he's seen. He wrote that in the wake of separation, while younger children feel grief, older children tend to think, if my parents can't be trusted to stay together and take care of the family, then I need to start relying more on myself. For Susan, after the divorce, her world revolved exclusively around books and fantasy. Helen noted that her daughter made few attempts to socialize with other children. She said, quote, books were Susan's friends. By the time she was 14, she'd read Turgenev, Chekhov, Tolstoy, you name it. But in 1972, when Susan was turning 15, her tendency to isolate herself began to interfere with her education. By that time, they had moved back to the suburban house in Concord, and Susan had to trek nearly two miles to walk to school. Susan claimed that the boys at her school harassed her on these daily journeys, catcalling and whistling at her. It made her uncomfortable and caused her a great deal of anxiety. In the classroom, Susan felt disconnected from her peers. She said, quote, I floated into class and floated out in a dream. I had the experience of never communicating with anyone or being understood. I was on another plane, in another dimension. My thoughts were different. I felt I spoke an inner language which could not be communicated. So eventually, Susan just stopped going to school. At the advice of school administrators, Helen took Susan to see an adolescent psychotherapist. His name? Dr. Felix Polk. Frank Felix Polk was born in Austria on June 30, 1932, to a wealthy Jewish family. He was the youngest of three children. When Felix was six, Austria was annexed by Nazi-led Germany. The Jewish Polk family was forced to flee to France and eventually went into hiding. 
They were able to obtain visas and sailed to New York City in November of 1941. They settled down in Harrison, New York, near the Connecticut border. Life in America was an adjustment for nine-year-old Felix. The family had lost their wealth, their country, and their home. Everyone was forced to start over. And no one in his family would talk about the horror they'd been through. Felix grew into a shy and reserved teen, preferring to read instead of socializing. When he graduated high school in 1949, he headed to St. John's College on a full scholarship to study literature. After graduation in 1953, he joined the Navy. During his service, Felix began to suffer from extreme anxiety and a lack of self-confidence. According to journalist Carol Pogash, he wrote a letter describing his inability to speak while out on a date with a woman, saying, the more I tried to relax, the more self-conscious I became until it became almost unbearable. I was near collapse. And in October of 1955, 23-year-old Felix reached a breaking point, desperately depressed. He shut himself inside his closed garage and started the engine, letting the small room fill up with exhaust. Luckily, one of Felix's friends had spoken to him earlier in the evening and been concerned by his morose state. She sent her mother over to check on him around midnight. She found him passed out. Felix survived, but spent the next year in a mental ward. After he was released, he was discharged from the Navy and went back to school to earn a master's degree in social work from Yeshiva University. He wanted to help people. While in grad school, he met his future wife, Sharon Mann. She was a concert pianist studying at Juilliard. Where Felix was shy and reserved, Sharon was provocative and outgoing. After Felix graduated in 1959, he decided to pursue a PhD in psychology. He and Sharon relocated to UC Berkeley where he spent the next six years learning cutting-edge techniques at the forefront of a new generation of psychotherapy. Felix became a convert of Erhard Seminars Training, or EST, in 1972. EST is also sometimes called Group Awareness Training. Founded by Werner Erhard, it was an extreme practice in which participants underwent verbal and emotional assaults in an effort to discard their egos and reshape their consciousness, allowing them to be a better version of themselves. It was a completely transformative experience for Felix, and he encouraged colleagues and patients to try it without hesitation. In addition to the unconventional EST, Felix eschewed one of the most prevalent norms in therapist and patient relationships, while most therapists aim to remain an impartial observer by revealing nothing about themselves to patients, he readily shared his own emotions and experiences. Dr. Ryan Howes discussed the reasons most therapists choose not to self-disclose. First, they don't want their own opinions to inhibit the disclosures of their patients. For example, if a therapist expressed a dislike of something, like a genre of music or type of food, it might make the patient wary to discuss their own experiences with it. Beyond that, by maintaining what Howes called the blank screen, therapists can better explore their patient's personal projection in an objective way and unpack why they have those assumptions. But Felix felt like that approach was too sterile and disingenuous. 
He wanted his patients to be able to trust him like a friend, and therefore, he divulged his own emotions and anecdotes. He invited them over for dinner. He gave them his personal number, even on vacation. Some patients even babysat his children. And when 40-year-old Felix started to counsel 15-year-old Susan Polk, he told her several times about the many similarities he saw between them. He confided that he too had been an anxious and quiet teen. They both loved Dostoevsky and hiding amidst the pages of a novel. Susan, who had felt like she was speaking a language that no one else understood, found a corollary in Felix, though he was nearly 25 years her senior. Her weekly sessions quickly became the bright spot of her week. As their meetings continued, Susan began to idolize Felix. This is actually a fairly common occurrence in therapy. Harvard Medical School psychiatry professor Thomas Gutau called it a golden fantasy. This is when a patient expects the psychiatrist or psychologist to fulfill all the needs in their life, not just the emotional support needs. Therapists typically aim to wean patients off of this mindset so they can find their own self-determination. Instead, Felix and Susan fell deeper into each other. He revealed secrets to her that he hadn't told anyone else, even his own wife, such as his suicide attempt in his early 20s. That vulnerability only cemented their connection. And eventually, their emotional relationship became physical. Coming up, Felix and Susan take a walk down the aisle. Now, back to the story. When 15-year-old Susan Bowling started seeing 40-year-old Felix Polk for her anxiety issues in 1972, she found a kindred spirit in her therapist. They connected over their love of literature, and Felix shared with Susan many intimate secrets. Susan described in Seduced by Madness that their physical relationship developed gradually over time. It started by sitting next to each other on the couch during her sessions. Then it progressed to holding hands and letting their legs brush against one another's. Then she sat on his lap during sessions. Then sessions ended with long, lingering hugs. Then those hugs were punctuated with a goodbye kiss. For most of her life, Susan stated that they began sleeping together during sessions when she was 18 or 19 and Felix was 43 or 44. However, she would later claim that it began earlier, when she was 16. And while this may seem like an obvious ethical breach, the California Psychological Association didn't expressly forbid having sex with patients until 1992. However, it should be noted that even before it was outlawed, dual relationships between therapist and patient were regarded as taboo whether that was dating a patient or simply contracting their professional services. Psychologist Dr. Margaret Singer, who actually taught Felix during his graduate work at Berkeley, said of dual relationships, the therapist doesn't become the landlord or the lover because a person puts onto therapy all the most positive hopes they can gather. Then, when a therapist lets the patient down or violates them, it's terrible. It's worse than a brother stealing money out of your purse. When William Masters and Virginia Johnson researched their book, Human Sexual Response, 
they were astounded by the number of women who reported having intimate relationships with their therapists. Based on the comments of these women, they concluded that these relationships were oftentimes severely damaging to the patient. They even went so far as to say that no matter who initiated the sexual contact, because of the nature of the relationship between a patient and therapist, the therapist should be sued for malpractice and rape. The sexual relationship between Susan and Felix continued for years, even after she started at Mills College in 1977. The all-woman campus was only a half an hour away from Berkeley's, so it was easy for them to maintain sessions. When Felix's wife, Sharon Polk, discovered the relationship in late November of 1978, she stormed into Felix's office and demanded a divorce in front of his colleagues. On the day they signed the paperwork, she allegedly demanded that Susan be there as well so that she could meet the other woman. When Susan's mother, Helen, found out they were together, she tried to introduce her daughter to more age-appropriate men, but Susan was glued in to Felix. She had never been on a date with anyone else. She never even went to her high school prom. In a New York Times article, psychologist Gary Schoner, who testified in several proceedings involving therapist-dual relationships, asked of Susan's case, did she ever on her own enter the adult world or only as a creation of his? Susan and Felix did take a six-month break in their relationship in 1979, when she was 22. She claimed that 47-year-old Felix was despondent, crying when they talked about the break. He brought up his previous suicide attempt. Susan later said that she felt she had a responsibility to Felix to remain in the relationship, saying, this man had had such a traumatic childhood. He had lost everything. I thought, I made my bed, I have to lie in it. He had left his wife, he had given everything up for me. But friends of the couple at the time painted Susan as a much more devoted figure, suggesting that she deferred to his every whim and followed him around like a puppy dog. They were married on December 26, 1981, when Susan was 24 and Felix was 49. Susan's mother, Helen, had provided the diamond for the wedding ring, but was disappointed that Felix had set it in a silver band instead of platinum. Beyond that, she had resigned herself to her new son-in-law. In the spring of 1982, they moved into a house in the Elmwood neighborhood of Berkeley. Felix used the large study as his home office. This was partially to save money and partially to spend more time with Susan. On breaks between patients, he would find her in the kitchen or garden or laundry room. Susan had a better head for numbers and took over the financials of Felix's practice. He would often forget to bill his patients and more than once, Susan found crumpled checks that he'd accidentally thrown away. On January 3rd, 1983, they welcomed their first son, Adam. Susan was completely infatuated with her little boy, never letting him out of her sight and resistant to letting anyone else care for him. Felix eventually convinced her to find childcare when Adam was eight or nine months old. They heard of another couple that wanted to share the cost of an au pair. She was a 50-year-old woman with good references. 
Whenever Susan needed a babysitter, she left Adam at her house. But Susan said she worried about her son anytime they were apart, even if only for a few hours. It's common for young mothers to have anxieties about what might happen to their children when they're away from them. But Susan's fears were most likely heightened by disturbing headlines at the time regarding children. Six-year-old Adam Walsh had been abducted and murdered less than two years before. Ten-year-old Kevin Collins became one of the first kids featured on a milk carton after he disappeared from a Haight-Ashbury playground less than 15 miles from the Polk House. And in September of 1983, the McMartin preschool trial surrounding the alleged molestation and satanic ritual abuse of children by their teacher sparked a nationwide satanic panic. Rumors of a vast hidden network of Satanists that preyed on children spread like wildfire. After the McMartin trial, nearly 100 other preschools were accused of subjecting children to occult-related sexual abuse. However, none of these claims, including McMartin's, were ever proven to be true. Dr. Gail Goodman, a psychologist at UC Davis, organized a survey of more than 11,000 psychiatric and police workers throughout the country, conducted for the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect. Goodman found more than 12,000 accusations of group cult sexual abuse based on satanic ritual, but not one that investigators had been able to substantiate. She said, after scouring the country, we found no evidence for large-scale cults that sexually abuse children. Still, once the fear was planted, it rankled in the hearts of parents. And shortly after Adam's first birthday, in January of 1984, Felix and Susan noticed their son acting strangely. He started lashing out and suffering from nightmares. Susan feared that something had happened while he was in the care of the au pair. As described by journalist Carol Pogash, when Adam started speaking, Susan coaxed her toddler to tell her about the bad people and what they had done to him. Anytime Susan could discern a person's name amidst Adam's toddler babble, she would look through the phone book, trying to identify the person. She then prompted Adam with names, waiting for him to verify which person he meant. Then, when she felt like she had a suspect, she would drive to their house and watch them for a few days, following them around, trying to determine if their behavior was suspicious. Eventually, with enough of this flawed question and answer, Susan became convinced that her own son was a victim of satanic ritual abuse. She believed that, after leaving him with the au pair, he had been shuttled to a warehouse where he and other children were placed inside cages. There, adult members of the satanic cult, dressed in red robes and wearing masks, sexually assaulted Adam and the other children, filming the entire ordeal on studio-grade cameras so they could sell the footage to pedophiles. She also believed that other children had been murdered as part of these rituals. Susan alleged that Adam told her that he had seen another child forced into a plastic garbage bag and beaten to death with hammers. Then, the group of red-clad adults feasted on the bloody flesh. Once again, the satanic panic was never substantiated, 
This phenomenon has since been labeled a moral panic, a term coined by sociologist Stanley Cohen. He said that moral panic arises out of widespread fear of a perceived threat to society by a group seen as evil that is overblown. Other examples are the Salem witch trials and McCarthyism. But Susan Polk was unwaveringly convinced that Adam had been horribly molested and abused while with the au pair. Felix was initially hesitant to believe his wife's claims, but after having his own discussions with Adam, he too was apparently convinced of their veracity. And even though investigations of satanic abuse claims around the country in the mid-80s came up empty again and again, to the Polks, this just proved how well-connected the cult was, able to make inquiries dry up and go away. They formed a grassroots organization called Enough to compel lawmakers to protect children and stop satanic ritual abuse. Susan and Felix spoke at rallies and benefits, raising awareness and money for their cause. In the years that followed, they had two more children, Eli, born in June of 1985, and Gabriel, born in January of 1987. Eventually, their parents believed that they had also been abused by members of a satanic cult. There may have been a few reasons why Felix, a psychotherapist and otherwise rational person, would join his wife in moral panic. It could be that he enjoyed being at the forefront of this national conversation. Much like the EST seminars, the response to satanic panic was another fad that swept the world of therapy, and he was happy to grab on for the ride. Because of his credentials as a psychotherapist specializing in children, Felix was invited as an expert to speak about satanic ritual abuse at conferences and law enforcement agencies all around the country. The other, more troubling explanation is that Felix was unable to face the fact that Susan was completely wrapped up in a paranoid delusion. If he didn't substantiate his wife's fears and beliefs about satanic abuse, he had to accept that she, his star patient, was mentally ill. By 1992, the panic had by and large subsided and the Polks shuddered enough. They relocated from Elmwood to the wealthy suburb of Piedmont. The neighborhood still featured many of the mansions built in the 1920s when it had the most millionaires per square mile in the country. Susan told neighbors that she moved so her boys could attend a good public school, but Felix confided in a friend that Susan believed shadowy figures had been following her in Elmwood. He played it off to the friend, suggesting that their work with Enough had perhaps led these threatening people to his wife. Still, the three Polk boys had a very typical upper-middle-class upbringing throughout the 90s. Susan remained a stay-at-home mom, organizing creative activities, making home-cooked meals, and arranging sleepovers and playdates. She gained a reputation among the other moms for acting more like a kid than a parent. According to Seduced by Madness, she took her boys and their friends to the mall to get their ears pierced, without asking any of their mothers beforehand. Susan, in turn, wrote off her Piedmont neighbors as smug and closed-minded. During their time in Piedmont, Felix found a new wave of therapy to ride. In the mid-90s, Repressed memory therapy became a prominent new technique. 
This therapy was based on the idea that some people who had suffered abuse as children were unable to comprehend what had happened to them at the time, and therefore tucked the experience away in the recesses of their mind. However, because the abuse was never dealt with, it would manifest itself as unexplained anxiety and rage as an adult. Only by exploring these repressed memories could patients truly free themselves of this emotional baggage. But the validity of these memories may have been given too much weight at the time. Frederick C. Cruz, author of Revenge of the Repressed, suggested that the movement was an overcorrection from earlier Freudian techniques that often discounted patients' reports of abuse and incest. Practitioners were instructed to believe the victim at all costs. Cruz wrote, a single diagnosis for miscellaneous complaints that of unconsciously repressed sexual abuse in childhood has grown from virtual non-existence to epidemic frequency. In fact, a 2007 study showed, quote, when people recalled sexual abuse in childhood during therapy, their account was less likely to be corroborated by other evidence than when the memories came without help. It's likely that many of the recovered memories during this time were actually false memories, unwittingly planted by therapists asking leading questions, similar to Susan's process of uncovering Adam's abuse by Satanists. But while repressed memory therapy was still at its height, Felix was noted for his particular gift in helping his patients uncover these events of abuse. Carol Pogash described a technique in which Felix asked patients to imagine their lives through a television set, each channel representing a year in their life. If they felt fear or anxiety about something, he asked them to flip through the channels until they recognized those same feelings at another point in their life. Then they unpacked the connection. For one of his patients, this technique helped her conquer her fear of crossing the Bay Bridge. She identified the sound of her tires going over the metal slats on the bridge as a trigger for her anxiety. She eventually uncovered a repressed memory of that same sound, remembering her father driving her across a wooden bridge, taking her to a barn where he then sexually abused her. Now understanding the source of her anxiety, she was cured. Once again, Dr. Felix Polk found himself at the forefront of a national conversation, looked to as an expert in this emerging field. He encouraged Susan to try it as well, never foreseeing the consequences. Eventually, the memories that she unearthed would plunge her into a world of fear and delusion. They would set her on the path that eventually ended in Felix's murder. Coming up, Susan remembers a long history of abuse. Now, back to the story. In the mid-90s, Susan Polk and her husband, Felix, were living out their piece of the American dream in the wealthy neighborhood of Piedmont, California. Felix's psychotherapy practice was booming, and he was at the forefront of a new style of treatment, repressed memory therapy. Susan tended to their house, their finances, and their three boys. Felix found so much success with his repressed memory patients, he encouraged his wife to try it as well. But the memories that she recovered were disturbing. In 1998, 
the Polk family went on a Disneyland vacation. One evening, back at the hotel, 41-year-old Susan had what 66-year-old Felix would later refer to as a psychotic break. As told in Seduced by Madness, Susan started to weep, unable to stop. She was overcome by a wave of memories that suddenly resurfaced. She remembered hiding in a closet. A man was chasing her, trying to get her, and she was terrified. She believed the man was her father and that he had sexually assaulted her as a child. It sent her into a tailspin. Shortly after the Disneyland trip, Susan recovered another memory. She saw her parents killing a police officer in their basement, beating him to death with hammers. This eventually led her to believe that neither Dick nor Helen Bowling were her real biological parents. Felix stuck by the believe the victim principle, but also arranged for a DNA test. The results showed unequivocally that Helen was Susan's mother. Yet while that new revelation was debunked, the rest of her delusions were seen as valid recovered memories. When she remembered being attacked and beaten by her brother David, who had always been the peacemaker of the two, this too became part of the factual record. But while Felix validated his wife at every turn, their eldest son, Adam, remembered this year as the time that he finally realized his mother was different from his friend's mother's. He saw Susan's overarching paranoia when she scanned the newspaper for coded messages and spouted conspiracy theories. Adam said that when he was 15, he confided in his father that he believed his mother might be crazy. Felix rejected it outright. He reminded Adam that Susan had believed him when he had suffered satanic ritual abuse. He owed it to her to believe her now. But after validating any memory that Susan recovered, Felix would find himself in an impossible situation. Susan realized one day that she couldn't remember anything about the first time she and Felix slept together. She couldn't remember what she was wearing, what they talked about. It was a complete blank space. Because of her repressed memory therapy, Susan believed that if she couldn't remember the experience, it must have been a traumatic one. She probed Felix to fill in the gaps, but he couldn't remember either. It had been over a decade. But this only fueled the fires of paranoia for Susan. Could he really not remember, or was he hiding something from her? Eventually, Susan remembered that when she was 16, Felix hypnotized her in one of their sessions and sexually assaulted her. She had not only repressed the trauma, but the hypnosis too had added to the amnesia. It shattered Susan. She asked Felix, how can I live with you? How could you do that? Felix didn't know what to do. He knew that he had not done what she accused him of, but he was also supposed to believe the victim absolutely. But in this instance, believing Susan made Felix a rapist. At an impasse, he referred his wife to a different therapist. However, fearful of the possible repercussions on his career and medical license, he allegedly insisted that Susan not talk about the circumstances under which their relationship had developed. So, she and the therapist didn't talk about much. Susan said, I was terrified of Felix, and I was sad that he hypnotized me 
raped me, and that he made me marry him. But I was not allowed to tell the psychiatrist this. The therapist kept asking me about Felix, and I was too afraid to tell him much of anything. By the end of 1998, the Polk marriage was collapsing. Susan made Felix move into one of the guest bedrooms of the house. But she didn't ask for a divorce, as she had come from a broken home and didn't want to inflict that on the boys. Throughout 1999 and 2000, Susan continued uncovering memories about Felix. She was eventually convinced that he had previously been a spy, working for both the CIA and Mossad. She believed that he had also tried to recruit her as a spy, giving her the codename Alice Little, who Alice in Wonderland is based on. Felix, struggling to comprehend his wife's delusions, became more watchful of her in response. But Susan interpreted his heightened protectiveness as surveillance. He watched her every move to control her. In the fall of 2000, she started feeling tingling and numbness in her hands and feet. To Susan, the only possible explanation was that Felix was drugging her. She stopped accepting any food or drink he brought into the house. The three Polk boys, 17-year-old Adam, 15-year-old Eli, and 13-year-old Gabriel, were starting to suffer under the weight of their mother's paranoia. Eli got in fights at school, and Gabriel was suspended for reducing another classmate to tears through teasing. They were both eventually expelled from the school district. Susan had expressed several times that she wanted Felix to move out of the house, but he'd resisted. Instead, in November of 2000, the whole family moved to a huge property in Orinda, California. In addition to the large house, there was a detached guest house. Felix stayed there while Susan and the boys stayed in the main house. Eli and Gabriel got a fresh start, and Adam, a senior, applied to colleges throughout California. But soon enough, turmoil reigned in the Polk household. Eli was expelled again in December of 2000 for possession of marijuana, Gabriel fell back into truancy. Throughout the spring of 2001, the police were summoned to the Polk home to settle screaming matches between Susan and Felix. They both alleged on different visits that the other one had gotten physical, but no charges were ever pressed. Then, when the police came on March 28th, Susan demanded they remove Felix from the premises. When they refused, she insisted they take her to jail instead. When they were hesitant to comply, she slapped Felix across the face in front of them, then declared, now take me to jail. After that night, Felix got a temporary restraining order. Susan moved out of the house into a beach cottage 10 minutes away. She decided to spend some time traveling, visiting Paris, Thailand, and Hawaii. Though along every stop, trouble seemed to follow Susan. The Parisians were snobs, she thought, the Thais pandering and disingenuous, the Hawaiians lazy. When she returned, she informed Felix that she wanted to get divorced, officially. In addition, she was leaving California for good and moving to Montana. In September of 2001, she drove out to Montana and rented a cabin that had been built in the late 1800s, she relished in the quiet, spending her time reading and writing. 
In her diary, she alternated between lamenting about being away from her boys and lambasting Felix. Back in Arinda, in her absence, Felix and the boys were able to spend more time together. As Susan's delusions had intensified, she had openly shared with Eli and Gabriel the abuse she had suffered at their father's hands, painting him as a manipulator who wanted to control their every thought and action. She'd even gone so far as to speculate ways she might kill Felix in front of the boys, such as running him over with her car or drowning him in the pool or blowing his head off with a shotgun. Gabriel said that he'd heard those threats so many times they'd lost their meaning. But without Susan in the house to continuously spout propaganda against Felix, the boys saw a different side of their father. They realized that he cared much more for them than they'd ever known. Susan had dominated so much of their caretaking, there wasn't much for Felix to do, and he had never really been the dad on the soccer field type. But when he heard from his boys how important it was, he started showing up. He attended every one of Eli's rugby matches that fall. Gabriel and Felix started having movie nights. Now, when Susan called from Montana and complained about Felix, the boys weren't so readily piling on. After a few months of this change, she believed that Felix had poisoned the boys against her. At the same time, the divorce proceedings were continuing to work themselves out, but Susan didn't show up to any of the hearings, staying in Montana. Her absence must have had an impact on the judge's ruling. He granted temporary custody of Gabriel, now 14, to Felix. Even though he had been living apart from Susan for almost nine months by that point, it was still a blow to her. She thought that once the judge awarded her custody, Gabriel would move to Montana. In addition, Susan had grossly misjudged just how much alimony she would be awarded. As caretaker of the family finances, she had estimated a number close to $7,000 a month, including child support. Instead, she was awarded just over $1,500 a month. These back-to-back -back blows sent her into a panic. She became convinced that Felix had influenced the judge in some way to rule in his favor. By reducing the alimony, she could no longer afford the lease on her cabin, another attack from Felix. The fact that she hadn't shown up for any of the hearings didn't seem to factor in. The reduced alimony amount chafed Susan in particular because she believed that Felix was hiding $20 million in a Cayman Island account. The difference between $1,500 and $7,000 was chump change to him. Shortly after the ruling came down, Susan informed Felix that she was coming back to California for a short trip. She had forgotten that she had prepaid for some dental work and wanted to have it done now. She also wanted to pick up some things she'd left behind in the Arinda house. On the phone, she informed Felix that she expected him to return to the pool house while she was in town. She would stay with Gabriel in the main house. If he didn't, she'd blow his head off. On Monday, October 7th, 2002, Susan left Montana for California. Along the way, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, she mailed a letter addressed to the FBI, the CIA, and one of the judges from their divorce proceedings. She told them that she had psychic abilities and had predicted the 9-11 attacks. She wrote that she had informed her husband, who was a spy, 
but he had only passed along the intel about her prediction to Mossad, not the CIA. So basically, Felix could have prevented the worst domestic terrorist attack in American history, but chose not to. By 9 p.m. on Wednesday, October 9th, Susan arrived back at the Arinda house. When she came in through the front door, she saw Gabriel and Felix watching TV together on the couch. Seeing how close her youngest child, her baby, had grown to her abuser, her mood immediately fell. Felix had now stolen everything from her. Her children, her home, her happiness, her virginity, her sanity. Her heart was broken. She vowed revenge. And less than four days later, around 11 p.m. on Sunday, October 13th, Susan and Felix squared off for the last time. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the Susan Polk story. We'll explore what happened that fateful night of October 13th, as well as the investigation and trial that followed. For more information on Susan Polk, amongst the many sources we used, we found the reporting of Carol Pogash in her book, Seduced by Madness, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.